Medtronic Technologies impacted more than 72 million people in the last year, equating to two people every second. Harnessing the power of technology to take healthcare further, each technology has unique benefits designed to serve patients. The goal of this program is to get closer to the patient and delve into the challenges and impact of each technology in practice. This is the Medtronic MedEd Learning Experience. The INVOS monitoring system should not be used as the sole basis for diagnosis or therapy and is intended only as an adjunct in patient assessment. Medtronic's medical education programs are offered to provide attendees education on the FDA-cleared indications and use of our products when applicable. The contents and conclusions of the following program are solely those of the speakers unless otherwise noted. The speakers are responsible for all content and any necessary permissions. The speakers received funding from Covidian LP, a Medtronic company, for this speaking engagement. For this segment of the series, a discussion on the value of NEARS in clinical practice in the NICU, discuss the potential utility of NEARS as a responsive monitoring technique. To help provide insight into these topics is Dr. Jonathan Mintzer, NICU Well Baby Nursery Medical Director at Mountainside Medical Center. Now, we've looked at normative values in a couple of studies. Now let's look at what's expected as signal noise or how that value is expected to change over time. So we asked the question, does the brain behave the same as the kidney, behave the same as the gut? I think we can logically say to ourselves we would expect some differences between those three organ systems. And furthermore, what's a statistical change versus a clinically significant change? If numbers vary over time, sometimes that variability can produce a statistical difference. However, our clinical difference is going to go beyond what we would expect in normal variability. However, without knowing what variability is or what the expected variability is of your signal, there's really no way to know what a clinically significant change is. So we've done some work looking at that. Now, this was some of the data that um, we generated about uh, 10 to 12 years ago uh, using NEARS monitoring during the first week of life among babies less than 1250 grams with a, a whole variety of conditions. And what we did here was we took moving averages of our data to generate some normative curves. Now, if you look at cerebral and renal, they kind of mask what was seen in the McNeil study. Um, the cerebral has the highest numbers, the least variability. Renal shows also high numbers that decrease over time with, with a bit more variability. Compare that to Splanknik, where the degree of variability is extreme, extreme to the point that standing at the bedside and watching the monitor, it's very difficult to determine trends taking place in real time. On the left here in this study, is an index patient. This is what, if you look at one hour's worth of data in a given patient, this is what they look like. Now, the dark blue line at the top of this graph represents one hour of renal data. The light blue line represents cerebral and the orange line represents splanchnic. The differences in variability are fairly, uh, are fairly clear when we look at that. Now, what we did in order to analyze babies to determine the expected normal variability was we found an hour of data during this continuing mon continuous monitoring of about uh, about 40 or so uh, babies less than 1250 grams each we found a quiescent hour which was an hour in the middle of the night where the baby was left completely alone no ventilator changes no fio2 changes no feeding changes no repositioning no diaper change nothing a sleeping baby in the middle of the night with nothing taking place at all once we defined a quiescent hour, we then were able to determine 
the degree of variability seen during that hour and then extrapolate that over the course over over the uh, full population of babies in this study. Now, if you take this one hour's worth of data, now remember the picture you're seeing here on the left is just an example. The numbers seen here on the right represent the full cohort of babies. If I take that one quiescent hour of cerebral data and look at it as a one hour average, I get a number like 85. If I divide that same hour's worth of data down into two 30 minute segments, I still get 85 and 85. If I go down to 15 minutes, I get 85, 85, 88, 82. If I take that same hour all the way down to five minutes, you can see the range of variability is all in the mid to upper 80s. And then at the bottom here, you see the 79. Okay, but let's compare that to Splanknik. Over a 60 minute average, you see a 51. Over 30 minute averages, a 51 and a 52. Over 15 minutes, 51, 51, 40, 64. Over five minutes, you see numbers as low as the 40s and as high as the 70s, demonstrating that if we're going to look at this data, we have to, we have to know the car we're driving. If you look at cerebral data, you generally get the same numbers, whether you're averaging them over five-minute blocks or over 60-minute intervals. If you look at Splanknik, on the other hand, how you study the number determines what you will see. A 60-minute average of 51 is not the same as a five-minute average of 77, or a similarly five-minute average of 38. Now, at the bottom of these, I show the coefficient of variation, which is a, a calculation of standard deviation divided by mean, or how much of the mean is represented by one standard deviation. In other words, what's the degree of variability? A large standard deviation will produce a large coefficient of variation. We see four to five percent variability in the cerebral signal between five and 60 minutes. Look at Splanknik now. Over five minutes, you're still seeing 23% variability. Over an hour, you're seeing a standard deviation that represents 32% of the mean. That's an extreme level of variability that has to be accounted for when we're looking at this type of monitoring. I, I left renal out of this. If you notice, all the numbers are intermediate to the two. My take home from this is 15 minute averaging for renal and Splanknik is probably prudent. Now let's look at what these numbers look like again, just graphically over the over our entire patient population. Cerebral is shown in these blue bars, renal is shown in orange, and Splanknik is shown in green. The y-axis here shows the coefficient of variation. And what you can see is between 5, 15, 30, and 60 minutes, cerebral is quite stable. Whereas Splanknik, on the other hand, is quite variable no matter how you look at it. Therefore, a shorter averaging interval is important for Splanknik mon monitoring in order to get the most that you can out of your signal. Another take home from that is, this is very difficult to monitor by just going to the bedside and looking at the monitor. Some sort of signal processing is probably necessary to get the most out of your, out of your renal and your Splanknik signals. Okay, let's look at some correlational analyses. Now, routine monitoring being the type of monitoring that you would see by adding in NEARS as an additional vital sign in a way, continuous monitoring, if you will. However, if we're going to look at that, we need to be able to correlate it to other measures that are perhaps more well accepted at this point, or at least more well studied over time. So we looked at 27 babies who uh, each provided us with a week's worth of data and were able to uh, make correlations between other variables that were looked at in these babies over the same monitoring interval. On the screen right now is some demographics of that patient population. Now, if we look at pulse oximetry, which is shown in the x-axis here, while cerebral on the left, renal in the middle, and splanchnic FTOE, or oxygen extraction, is shown in the y-axis, we can start to see our correlations. As you decrease pulse ox in the brain, you see very little changes in oxygen extraction. 
Look at that on the kidney though. As you decrease your oxygen saturation, your pulse ox, you see an increase in renal oxygen extraction. This is physiologically understandable as with hypoxia, we have, we have a redistribution of blood flow supposedly to protect the brain. Maybe this is a sign that yes, in fact, cerebral oxygenation was stable even at lower oxygen, oxygen saturation seen on pulse ox. Shown here in Splanknik is a very high degree of variability for which no real relationship could be determined. Uh, the degree of scatter here uh, really precludes any, any analysis taking place. I did run a Pearson correlation though, which did, did generate a p-value, but unfortunately in the wrong direction. Uh, you're going to see that this um, trend shows up in slide after slide for the next couple variables we'll be looking at. Let's look at uh, hematocrit versus FTOE. Again, the same three graphs, the y-axis is the same, cerebral, renal, and splanchnic, FTOE, but now we're going to be looking at hematocrit. As hematocrit drops down, you have decreased oxygen delivery, therefore cerebral oxygen extraction rises. The same decrease in hematocrit produces a more pronounced increase in renal oxygen extraction. And again, no relationship could be seen for splanchnic. The fact of the renal being more sensitive to this change is something that's going to show up again and again. The cerebral has a dual blood supply, redistribution of blood flow to protect the brain. Therefore, in states of hypoxia, whether it's due to oxygenation itself or due to a low hematocrit or anemia, this is, a, this is something that we see. The brain will increase its oxygen extraction, but not in as robust a way as the kidney, probably due to redistribution of blood flow. Let's look at PaCO2. Now, as we know, PaCO2 is a potent peripheral vasoconstrictor and a cerebral vasodilator. So interesting. As we, let's start with the kidney this time. As we increase PaCO2, Probably due to vasoconstriction, redistribution of blood flow, we do see an increase in renal oxygen extraction. On the other hand, if you increase PaCO2, you actually see a decrease in cerebral FTOE, at least as a trend. Now, this is interesting in that perhaps this is showing us that redistribution of blood flow away from peripheral organs to the brain actually overshoots such that more so such that enough oxygen is making it to the brain that the cerebral circulation no longer needs to extract as much oxygen as it was previously. Again, this is a hypothetical correlation and there's other factors at play that may be affecting this relationship too, you know, for the, for example, the reasons why CO2 is rising. But um, it's very interesting to see this relationship as, you know, showing up in our data. Let's look at PaO2. Here's a very dramatic relationship. As PaO2, or free oxygen as seen in the, in the blood, as that decreases, we see, again, a nice robust increase in renal oxygen extraction, which is, again, seen but much less pronounced in the brain, redistribution of blood flow to protect the brain. Now let's look at some derived parameters. First, I show here oxygen content, or uh, everybody's favorite board question, which requires you to know your hemoglobin, your PaO2, um, and you know do a calculation of the amount of oxygen contained in the in the uh, in the blood. So oxygen content, as the number decreases, as expected, you would see an increase in cerebral oxygen extraction. Again, much more pronounced in the kidney, potentially due to redistribution of blood flow. Let's look at AA gradient. Again, this is a measure um, seen in our sickest babies of the amount of oxygen placed into the alveolus compared to the amount of oxygen that makes it through into the arteries. 
uh, a very large gradient means that you're pumping tons of oxygen into the alveolus and only getting a very little amount into your arteries. In other words, very sick lungs. Whereas a low gradient is, is normal, where the amount of oxygen you put in the alveolus has a very close relationship with what makes it into the arteries. Therefore, the difference between the two it comes out to zero or, or a very low number. As you increase your oxygen, your alveolar arterial oxygen gradient, your AA gradient, you do see a gentle increase in cerebral oxygen extraction, again, more pronounced in the renal circulation, potentially, again, redistribution of blood flow to, pr to protect the brain. Final measurement. I know this is becoming tiresome. Uh, this is oxygenation index, uh, the numerator of which is the amount of oxygen support we're providing, a uh, mean airway pressure and FiO2, and the denominator is the PaO2 uh, postductally, or the amount of oxygen that makes it into the bloodstream. So this is an index that represents how hard you're trying to oxygenate a baby in the numerator versus how much oxygen is actually getting to the baby in the denominator. A high number here is an indication of lots of support, but only giving only getting a little bit of oxygen into the baby. In other words, a very sick kid. And again, the same relationship as we would expect. As OI increases, cerebral oxygen extraction is seen to increase. The same relationship seen in the kidney as well. Now, I think I've beaten this to death at this point, but let's go back a couple slides. Okay, we're looking at, pardon me, we're looking at hematocrit, PaCO2, PaO2, oxygen content, AA gradient, oxygenation index. What do those all have in common? In these studies, more than 225 blood draws took place to determine this data. 225 blood draws in a cohort of 27 babies. You do the math on that and you can see in the first week of life how many blood draws per baby were taking place. Now, this blood was not necessarily being drawn specifically and only for this purpose. You know, you do your standard monitoring in a baby. But if there's a non-invasive monitor that can clue you into changes that may be taking place that may help you choose wisely which baby does need the more invasive blood draw, maybe that's a way of taking kinder, gentler care of our babies over time. Remember, 27 babies, 225 blood draws. That's a large amount of blood being drawn on a routine basis on the sickest babies that we have in our, in our population. Okay, so I want to, I want to make that point. And uh, the take-home messages from this part of routine monitoring are numerous. Number one, well, number one is number four on here. You need to know the car you're driving. You need to know how does the brain behave? How does the kidney behave? How does the gut behave? What are the expected numbers? What are their expected variability? I'll, I'll read these. Cerebral, it may be too stable, but it's important for overall monitoring because monitoring of the brain gives you important information about the clinical potential clinical outcomes on your baby. Number two, splanchnic is very unstable. However, it may be important for specific conditions, and we'll be looking at it later when it comes to necrotizing enterocolitis. However, it is a very unstable measure. It's very variable to the point that signal processing is needed to actually look at the number. It may not be that easy to do actually at the bedside. Number three, renal may actually be the most sensitive for real-time changes. Remember, the brain is so stable that you have to have a really sick baby in order, to in order to affect cerebral oxygenation and oxygen utilization. On the other hand, renal, with its limited blood supply, and also due to blood flow redistribution, may be the most sensitive for real-time changes. Renal may be our early warning system. Again, number four, you have to know what the baseline variability is. How do the signals behave? Once we have that knowledge, we can then figure out what the perturbations in that behavior actually look like. Please tune in next week for a new segment from this series wherever you find your podcast. This is the Medtronic MedEd Learning Experience.
Thank you for listening.